This morning, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to John 9. John chapter 9. We're going to return to the Gospel of John this morning. We uh, don't think we've been here since November, so we're coming back and uh, picking up where we, where we left off. John chapter 9. Now, since it's been a little bit, I'll just remind you of a couple of general things um, that is helpful as we move into this chapter. Um, This is an obvious statement, but John chapter 9 comes after John chapter 8. But what's helpful about that is in John chapter 8 is where Jesus begins this theme of being the light of the world. And um, he makes the statement that he is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that that theme is going to... be played out through John chapter 9. We might even say that theme is kind of applied in John chapter 9. We're going to see in our first little um, story of this chapter, uh, it's a a story with several different movements, we could say. We're just going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning, but it's the, the story of Jesus seeing the blind man, and and then this question gets brought up about why he's blind, and really we could broaden that out, and just why we're going to look this morning about suffering, or look at suffering and, and the glory of God. Uh, but, but then after verse 7, it moves into different responses and different really different takes at light and darkness in response to Jesus' work, what Jesus has done, how people respond to it is really put on display throughout this chapter. We're not so much going to be looking at that this morning, but it is helpful to, to think about John 8 and 9 in one chunk. They're not, they're, we're not starting anything new thematically whenever we jump into John 9. So Jesus has said that He is the uh, light of the world in John 8, and we ought to be thinking about that as we, as we make our way through uh, John 9. So let me read the first seven verses of John chapter 9, and we will jump into our message for this morning. It says, And Jesus passed by, and He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And His disciples asked Him, saying, Master, who did sin? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken... He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. So we have really three different things that I want to see from the, or or want to kind of look at, zoom in on maybe from the passage. They're pretty obvious as we unfold these seven verses. The first thing that we see is the, uh, the light of the world. Okay. That's just, that's Jesus. Notice how verse one, um, verse one gives this description. 
he passed by, he is, he's leaving the Feast of, of Tabernacles. He passes by and he sees a man which was blind from, from birth. Now we've said this as we've gone through the Gospel of John, but when we go back to John chapter one and look at that prologue, it's again kind of helpful to say, to see that in seed form, everything else that John's going to say in his gospel fits thematically somewhere into that prologue. So where we are this morning, as we're thinking about the, the light of the world, it, it might be helpful or it might set us up well to think about that in light of the first five verses of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not." So themes of Jesus, the Word, the Son of God, the One who created all things, the One who shines the light into the darkness are helpful as we think through this. So the light of the world. Jesus passes by, verse 1, and He saw a man. Now, the word there for saw is um, it's a word that's used several times in the Gospels, and if we're not careful, we just move right over it, and and it's almost as if uh, Jesus maybe glanced or there was a man that was in his eyesight that he just noticed as he walked by, and that was that. But the word here for Saul, it it really means that he he beheld. Okay, he he considered, he he gazed upon, or we could say it this way, he took an interest in or he gave attention to this man which was blind from birth. Now, you already know who Jesus is. You already know what Jesus is like. You've read the Gospels before. This isn't a huge contrast for you. But in light of the norm, this seemingly insignificant detail is part of what it means for Jesus to be the light that shines into the darkness. You know, you don't really find many passages in Scripture, I should say any passages in Scripture, where the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, are giving any real attention to the poor, pitiful beggars along the way. That's not there. And that's because they could get nothing from these people. These people had nothing to offer. They were on the lower rungs of society. And yet Jesus walks by. He sees this. Now we're using the term in in light of what he would have been in that culture. He sees this insignificant man and relates to him as if he is significant. Isn't that something? You realize that if you know Jesus Christ, that's your story too. He passed by and saw an insignificant individual. And he gazed. He gazed his he gave his attention to. He took an interest in. He considered. 
we won't park it here long. We could, but but to move along and get to the bulk of the message, it's worth noting that while Jesus' disciples see this man who was blind from birth, by the way, we don't really know how they know that he was blind from birth. I think part of the significance of that detail is going to come into play when we get further into the chapter and what Jesus is doing here as a physical miracle, that is, giving a man who was blind from birth the ability to see physically, Jesus is also going to uh, apply that spiritually as those who are born spiritually blind from birth are given illumination through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to see spiritual things. But this man is, is blind from birth, and as his disciples walk by, they see a theological or philosophical riddle to try to throw around and discuss. You know their question. Who sinned? Was it him? Was it his father? How did he end up this way? Jesus does not see a riddle. He sees a person to engage. He goes up to this man. He interacts with this man. He heals this man. The light of the world. He's, uh, again, it almost seems too obvious to point out, to be meaningful until you really think about it in contrast to not just the world there, but the world here, the world now. He's the Savior who takes an interest in and personally engages with people one-on-one where we are. This is the light of the world. He doesn't stand far off. He enters into our world, into our suffering, and then He redeems and heals, restores So that's the light of the world. Secondly, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, we see the disciples of the light. The disciples of the light in verse 2. His disciples asked Him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples see this man, they learn that he was born blind from birth, and they have a question about him. Now, we may at face value look at that and say, my goodness, those silly disciples. What a question. What a question. Um... But you know, life is, is full of difficult questions. I mean, it really is. We, we, right now, as a church, we've seen a year with one form of physical suffering or another pop up, right? I mean, it's, this, this year has been more than um, any that I can remember as far as cases of sickness, Cases of suffering, cases of loss. It's not a stupid question. What happened? How did this happen? 
So there's plenty of difficult questions that we have in life. Really, the the question is, where do we look for answers? What we really see in the disciples is that they bring a wrong interpretation to the right person. They don't have it right. We could go through why they would have asked that question. It would have made sense in their context because of a couple of different reasons, but for us to hash through all that's not going to make a whole lot of sense, or I say not make a lot of sense. It's not going to add anything to what we say. So just leave it to the, the, the reality that what they're doing, really, brothers and sisters, is, is they are modeling where we ought to take those difficult questions, those difficult scenarios in life that we we just have a hard time making sense out of. I've said this before, and I'm certainly not the first person to say it, but every human being is an interpreter. I mean, you make interpretations every single day. The reason anything makes sense to you at all is because you are interpreting it. You're making it make sense somehow. Every human being is a disciple or a learner. We all learn. The question is, for me and for you, and particularly as we look at the disciples here, it begs the question, who is discipling you? That is, where are you coming up with your answers to these kinds of questions? There's nothing wrong with these kinds of questions. There are times where well-meaning Christians say, I know we're not supposed to question. Well, where do you come up with that? I mean, Scripture never says thou shalt not ask a question. Difficult things happen. Questions are natural. They're normal. The question is, where do we take these kinds of questions? Things like, why is there suffering in this world? Well, that's a fair question. Matter of fact, that's a question that's a very basic question that any uh, system of philosophy is going to try to deal with. Why do some people suffer more than others? You've known folks where you've just thought, man, how much? How much can one person take? How much can one family take? Why are some people born with disease and disabilities? Can we ask that question? Is that off limits? Or how about this one? Why do some people get a taste of what life is like uh, living with a fully functioning mind and body only to have that stripped from them through an accident or an ailment? Why? Is it okay to ask that? Well, you know by now the answer is yes. At least I think it's yes. I think Scripture says yes. Now, the the important question is this. Where do we even begin to formulate answers to these kinds of questions? Where do we begin to formulate answers to these kinds of questions? I mean, these are big questions. These are important questions. These are weighty questions. Now, you already knew this. 
Um, but as we approach these questions, we're obviously going to approach them with Scripture as our authority. And so in order to get there, then this is where we start. And then we'll talk about how to kind of build a foundation for that. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, this is a... This is a verse you're all going to be familiar with. If you've heard many graduation speeches, you've heard this verse quoted. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Really, verse 5 is what we're after. Lean not unto your own understanding. Trust the Lord and do not lean to your own understanding. So where do we start? Well, first, everybody has to start with some fixed point of reference that must be embraced by faith. Now, we're, we're building up to the argument here. But this is where everybody starts. Um, we say Genesis 1-1 is where we start. Where do we start in trying to find answers to our questions? Where do we start as it relates to trusting God, not leaning to our own understanding? Well, we start here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our, our ultimate reference point is God. A God who created. Now there are different people that start in different places. Some people say, well, you know, I prefer, as we think through these kinds of questions, I prefer to stick with what we know. Stick with science. But you know, the, the question and problem of suffering is not a scientific question. That doesn't work. But let's just say you did start there. Okay? And you may say, you know, I, this whole stuff about God creating is just more than I can swallow. I, I don't have enough faith to embrace that. Well, you know what most, at least atheistic scientists, agnostic type scientists, you know where they start, don't you? I mean, in the sophisticated world of science, we got here because space aliens impregnated ice crystals that eventually led to the Big Bang. Okay. If you can't swallow a God who created, I'm not sure how you swallow that. And if that's your reference point, then where you end up arriving in answering these major questions about life is going to be far, far different than a personal God who created a personal universe for a personal purpose. Okay, so our reference point here is in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God was and we weren't. Secondly, if God is our point of reference for the world and all things in it, and this is important, 
then truth must be revealed by Him and received by us. Truth must be revealed by Him and received by us. That means any enlightenment that we might have comes from the Creator of all things. And so it's not revealed through us as far as a source. It's revealed by Him, received by us. That means this. I don't get to decide truth and reality based on what makes sense to me or based on what aligns with my personal experience. And that can be a hard pill to swallow. But if we start with in the beginning God created and we move to the fact that since He's our source, our reference point, that He must reveal and I must receive, Okay, then the third question is this. If truth must be revealed by God before it can be received by us, where has God revealed truth? Where has God revealed truth? And we say, because Scripture says, and you think about, we've gone here a lot in our um, time in John, John chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So, conviction number one for Bible-believing Christians is that God has revealed, has fully revealed truth through His Son, Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews chapter 1 would lay that out. That God spoke in various times and various ways in the past, but now He has spoken through His Son. And we say, well, okay. That was, that was fine and well for you know a couple of thousand years ago, but what about now? And you already know the answer to this. God has spoken through His Son... And God has also spoken to us through His Word. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. Okay? Breathed out by God. The, the inspiration of Scripture. The doctrine there. That is, if we want to know what God thinks, this is where we go. This is where He has revealed it. If we want to make sense out of the world that He created, this is where we go. And so the disciples in John chapter 9, they see this man, they're trying to make sense out of it, and they did just exactly what any other disciple of Jesus Christ ought to do, and that is they brought their questions straight to Him. Okay, It's a great model. And so for us, we bring our, we bring our questions to the, to the Word. So the disciples come to Jesus and they're asking a very specific question about a very specific person. They say about the man who was born blind. Why? Okay. Who sinned? Was this man blind from birth because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Why? 
I don't know that I've said this yet, but if I haven't, let me just go ahead and say it. It's a good time to say it. Title of the message out of this section is Suffering and the Glory of God. Okay, understanding suffering and the glory of God. So, who sinned? Well, before we get to the way that Christ answers the question, let's let's hit a couple of foundational questions that that lead into this. So, question number one is why does suffering exist in this world? That's a foundational question. Why does suffering exist? Well, Bible-believing Christians say that suffering exists because sin exists. Adam and Eve were put in the garden and God told Adam, the day that you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will surely die. Whenever we get to Genesis chapter 3 and the curse has come into the world and, and, and God is articulating this, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be unto thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the, of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. He goes on, but it's sorrow. Sorrow is brought into the world because of rebellion and sin. It's what we call the curse of sin or the fall that happened there during the first rebellion, the first sin. You remember in Genesis 1.31, God said that He created the world and it was good and very good. Means there was nothing wrong with it. There was nothing to be upset about. Everything worked the way that God intended for it to work. But then sin entered into the world because of sin, suffering, and death. We see that very quickly in Genesis. But why does suffering exist in the world? Because sin exists in this world. Question number two is personal suffering ever the result of personal sin? Is personal suffering ever the result of personal sin? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Think about this in Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. I've got my wrong, I've got a reference wrong here. But check out 14 in case I left off the one. Yeah, I'll have to look up the reference later. But in Proverbs it says that the, the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. Why? Because of his transgressions. Right? The uh, if you if you read through Proverbs, you find that. Thematically speaking, it's, it's comparing, contrasting the foolish individual with the wise individual. 
And what you find is that the fool suffers again and again and again and again because of his foolishness. So is suffering ever a result of personal sin? Well, yes. Jeremiah would point to that as well. Jeremiah chapter 2. I mean, we could, we could trace this in a lot of clear ways throughout Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 19. He says, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. So he is rebuking them and he's saying that your own rebellion is going to be what chastises you, or that is, your own rebellion is going to cause suffering in your life. So is personal suffering ever the result of sin? Yes, it is. You know that, I know that. Both by way of Scripture and both by experience. But now here's the third question. Is personal suffering always the result of personal sin? And of course the answer is no. Personal suffering is not always the result of personal sin. The whole book of Job is built on that premise. Job was not being, now he was not a sinless man, but he was not being punished for his sin um, whenever he endured the difficulties that he endured. Our text this morning would also bear that out. Jesus says, neither. Which one was it? The, the, the man or his parents that sinned, that made him blind. And Jesus says, neither one. That's not what this is all about. Now, if we were to go through and build a theology of suffering, there's lots of different categories and lots of different purposes for suffering. But I think these three questions as an umbrella pretty well cover it. Sin and suffering go hand in hand. That's why we live in a world where suffering exists. There are times where suffering is connected to personal sin, but personal suffering is not always connected to personal sin. Okay, Those three things pretty well cover it in an umbrella form. So the disciples of the light, they have this question, they bring this question to Christ. And then we see the light breaking into the darkness. The light breaking into the darkness. We see that in a couple of ways. Number one, we see Jesus as the light bringing illumination, bringing understanding. Now it's kind of a difficult thing to understand, but nevertheless, He shines the light of truth onto this. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So Jesus says, it's not because this man sinned, and it's not because his parents sinned. This man was born blind so that the works of God might be manifest in him. We could also say it this way. This man was born blind so that God might receive glory as Jesus' healing power and mercy is put on public display. 
That's Jesus' answer. You say, well, I don't, I don't like that answer. Well, that's why we started earlier with how do we, how do we, how do we come at these kinds of things? How do we come to truth? What is our source? Where are we looking? It's worth noting that this is not just a one-off. Jesus gives this same answer in John chapter 11. We'll be there in a little while. John chapter 11. He hears that Lazarus is sick. His sisters call for him. And in John chapter 11, verse 4, it says, When Jesus heard that, He said, This sickness is not unto death. Well, what's it for? But for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Well, Jesus' answer here can be surprising. Jesus' answer here can even seem a little bit offensive and strange. You're telling me that suffering exists so that Christ might glorify Himself? And the answer to that is yes. But the reason that it seems strange is not because it's a strange answer. It's because we don't have a proper view of God's glory as it's laid out in Scripture. Now, I will say, this is definitely an area where wrestling is appropriate. But if we're not wrestling with the right realities... We'll, we'll never get there. So, for instance, Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 1. The psalmist says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. The psalmist says, don't glorify us, Lord, glorify your name. Glorify your name. What is God's glory? What are we talking about when we talk about God's glory? And we've done this enough where, you know, many of you know what we're going to say, but the, the, the literal definition is just his weightiness. It's His majesty. It's His beauty. And in a nutshell, it just means when, when we're talking about God's glory, we're talking about God's worth put on display. God's worth put on display. Now, this whole idea of God's glory and suffering has been debated and, uh, and distorted in a lot of different ways. One Scottish philosopher said, as it related to suffering in the world, um, how does suffering and in in the world and and uh, and a good God? How do, how do those things make sense? And and he said, well, either God's not good or God's not sovereign. One of the two. Um, 
how could he be good and let bad things happen? That doesn't make sense. Or how can he be sovereign and good and allow bad things to happen? So either things are outside of his control or he's not good to begin with. Well, what do you suppose the reference point is for a conclusion like that? Um, where you start is important. It's sad to say that many of our people have taken that sort of philosophy and jumped on it and have come to the conclusion that God's sovereignty has its limitations as it relates to human suffering. That there are some things that happen that God is just absolutely not involved in. And they do that to try to help God save face. But the problem is God doesn't need you to help Him save face. He's not blushing. Scripture says what Scripture says. So, so we have a couple of things to think about in relation to this. Number one, either God exists to glorify all things or all things exist to glorify God. Okay, It's got to be one of, the, one of the other. Or we could say it this way. Now we're thinking about ourselves, and again, these are not just a one-off thing. I mean, these are things to, to, to wrestle with in certain scenarios. But it's worth thinking, were you created to be the center of God's universe, or was He intended to be the center of yours? How you answer that is going to have a huge effect on how you answer this problem of sin and suffering. And so, again, we, we, we back up for a little bit of a bigger view here. As we try to make sense out of these kinds of things, what, what do you mean? so that the works of God might be manifest in him. What do you mean this sickness was so that God could be glorified, John chapter 11? Again, God's glory is his worth put on display. His weight, his majesty, it's his value. And so at some level, really, we all function by understanding our lives in light of a bigger story. The story of our lives is the sum of our experiences and the condition of our heart is affected by how we understand and interpret those experiences. And it helps us to figure out really which events are the major events and which events are the minor events. See, the way we make sense out of things is, I mean, we don't think about it this way, but it's pretty... Pretty complicated. How do you know what's a major event? I mean, the sum total of your life experience, if you're even a couple of years old, is a million different things. Joseph said in Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Okay, why do I bring that up? Because Joseph knew what to major on. He knew what was major and what was minor. He had the discernment to be able to lay that out. And so it's like we said before, for every story, there's a main character. Before we talked about a reference point, now we're talking about a main character in the story. So in the story of your life, in the story of this world, who's the main character? Well, surely it's not me. 
If it is, it's not worth you reading or knowing about. Okay, And if it is, I'm already doomed to failure because by default, you're going to make your story better than mine. But you already know this. The main character in my story and in your story is God. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting, thou art God. The one who has been in existence from all eternity. We said earlier that He's created the heavens and the earth. God the Creator. Why did He create all that's created? Well, Proverbs 16.4 says that the Lord has made all things for Himself. Is that selfish? Does, does, does that make God's character deficient in some way? In Isaiah 46 verse 9, he says, I am God and there is none other. God's throne is only big enough for one, and that's, that's Him. And again, does that mean there's some sort of character deficiency with God? Is He threatened by you? Or Isaiah 42 verse 8, when God says that His glory is reserved exclusively for Himself, He will not give it to another. His glory is for Him. He will not give it to another. And we ask the question again, is this a character deficiency with God? Is, is this a character flaw? No. No, how is it that the Lord could make all things for Himself, that He could have a throne that's only big enough for one, and that God's glory could only be exclusively reserved for Himself? And the answer to all three of those questions is, because He's the only one worth occupying all three of those. In other words, you couldn't do it even if you wanted it. In order for God to say these things means that God is seeing things for what they are. You know what it means for somebody to be too big for their britches? You've been there. I've been there. You know God's never been there? He's always thought rightly about Himself. We could think about this in all kinds of scenarios. I mean, one of the clearest scenarios is that of parenting. Folks that don't have kids who see people who do have kids. And they think, my goodness, when I have kids, they are going to be nothing like that. Until you have them and they're just like that. And it turned out you were a little too big for your britches. You thought you could do more than you could actually do. You didn't have an accurate read on the situation and you certainly didn't have an accurate read on yourself. God's not that way. And so for Him to say that He created all things for Himself, it's by Him that we live and we breathe and we have our being. He's caring for, sustaining. To say that I am God and there is none else, again, if we're thinking about God as Scripture reveals Him, can you imagine the disaster if He were to say, why don't you take over for a little bit? Well, you don't have to think very far because we've all made messes of our lives by taking over for a little bit. And when God says that His glory is reserved exclusively for Himself, 
if we're seeing things right, then we say that's exactly where it belongs. You see, if my starting point in trying to understand pain and suffering is me, that is what I have done, what has happened to me, and what I deserve or what I think I deserve, I'm going to be completely disoriented in trying to make sense out of all this. David says in 1 Chronicles 29, 1 Chronicles 29, this prayer that David prays in verse 11 through 13, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all, both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank Thee and we praise Thy glorious name. Essentially, he says, Lord, You're worthy of all this because of who You are. This is why You're worthy, or this is why You are worth all these things that are laid out. Or we go over to Revelation chapter 5. I'm not going to turn there, but Revelation chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, and and the song that rings out is what? Worthy is the Lamb to receive what? Honor and glory. Or Romans eleven thirty six. Of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things to whom be glory. So Jesus looks at the situation, He knows, and it makes perfect sense for Him to say, no, this is not because of this man's sin. It's it's not because of His parents' sin. It's so that the works of God might be made manifest through Him. That is, that God might be glorified through this situation. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to look throughout the chapter to see how that, how that plays out. But the question is, how does God's glory and really the purpose for my suffering and your suffering being to put God's glory on display or for God to display His glory in some way, how does that change the way that we might think about personal suffering? This man spent, I don't know, we don't know how old the guy was. Maybe 30 years, maybe 60 years. 60 years of his life, blind. Jesus encounters him and gives him sight, both physical and spiritual. If you were to ask the man today, were those 60 years of blindness worth the glory that God put on display by using you 
and using your suffering. What do you suppose he would say? Let's just say he was 60. We don't know how old he was. If you were to ask him that same question at age 59, he probably would not answer it the same. So the question is, how does a reality like this change the way we think about our suffering? Or maybe we should say about the way we respond to personal suffering. Well, we can't answer every question about this, but look in 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, we have this experience that Paul has that runs in the same vein as what we're talking about here. Second Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Paul is talking about some experiences that he's had, things that the Lord has revealed to him, um, uh, some pretty miraculous things that have happened with him. And then he says in verse 7, and, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he, that is the Lord, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A couple of points of application here. Now, Paul's particular experience here may not completely overlap on any one of ours in particular all the way, but we can gain a little bit of insight here. Based on Paul's experience, perhaps our experience of suffering is meant to shift our focus away from our own glory, or the glory of the world's pleasures and treasures to the glory of Christ. You know, there's nothing like pain and suffering that gets our attention and that exposes that we need something besides what's in front of us. The world has nothing for a crushed heart. The world has nothing for a void that just can't be filled. Not with entertainment. Not with trinkets. And so perhaps suffering in our lives is meant to shift our focus to the glory of Christ and the necessity of Christ. Whenever we say the glory of Christ, it just means to draw near and receive what we need from Him. Secondly, perhaps 
Again, all these are perhaps. You'll have to answer this for yourself as you are in your own particular circumstance. Perhaps suffering is meant to help me embrace the fact that I can only glorify God when I'm willing to humble myself. Paul says, so that I was not exalted above measure. I was given this, we could say suffering, that's what, he was, that's what it was, uh, to humble him, to make him more dependent, to make him weak, so that in him Christ might be strong. Or maybe we could say this, again, you'll have to decide. Perhaps suffering is, is meant to be an instrument of change in my life, that helps me to taste and see that the Lord is good as I find His grace to be sufficient for my need. This is the truth about this whole scenario in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We have to learn to live on the sufficient grace of Christ because we want more. And, and, and as I say that, I'm including myself. Because we don't always understand what it means. As a matter of fact, at times we've barely nibbled at it. But Paul says, I've come to understand this. I've come to learn this. And now I've come to embrace it. It's really just a different way of saying what the psalmist in Psalm 119 said. In Psalm 119, 67 and 68, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. Or verse 71, 72, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. What's he saying? He's saying that through affliction, the Lord produced something in me that I could have never produced in myself. And it was good. The end product was good. Now, he's not saying I really enjoyed my affliction. He's not saying the affliction felt good. He's saying that God brought something good to his glory out of it. So Jesus says that the works of God might be manifest and then he goes on, and we'll, we'll wrap this up. We're close to the end of our time. And by the way, we could stop here and go through the room, and you could hear testimony after testimony that would, that would fill in the details of what I just said. Uh, difficulties, suffering, trials that you would have never ever signed up for that have become some of the most significant events in your life for your good. So the light brings illumination, helps us to make sense out of, interpret Reality. And then we see in verses 4 through 7 that the light brings healing. 
the light brings healing. Verse 4, I must work the works of Him that sent me. This is John chapter 9, verse 4. I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when He had thus spoken, He sped on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He that is the blind man went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. Now, R.C. Sproul says about this last verse, verse 7, it's one of the many uh, extreme understatements of Scripture. You have a guy who was blind his entire life, and the only thing he says was, and he came back seen <laughs> for the very first time. The guy had never seen a person before. He'd never seen a color before. He'd never seen a tree before. He'd never seen anything before. And he comes back seen. Notice God's glory, how it's put on display here. Number one, the man is healed. Did you know that God's glory is put on display in the lives of His people as He heals from suffering and through suffering? Jesus puts God's glory on display by reversing the curse of sin in this man's life. Now, it's not just, it's not that we're not talking about the curse of his sin. We're talking about the curse of sin in general. And as we get into the chapter, we see that Jesus is reversing that curse in both a physical and a spiritual realm. The glory of God, this is last, is put on display in this suffering. And this is our suffering as well. And that He is using it for His people's ultimate good as His redemptive purposes unfold throughout time and eternity. Think about all the ways God has been glorified through this one man's story. I mean, if you go throughout the chapter, you see the different responses to it. He's glorified in the fact that the man comes back and he's looking for him. He's glorified in the fact that people see this and they say, come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. He's glorified as this is a um, stage, a platform for Jesus to expose the hardness of the Pharisees. And brothers and sisters, he's also glorified as this passage is preached on in February 4th, 2024. Think about all the ways the Lord has used this man's life and this man's experience to glorify himself. You know, one of the ways that God glorifies himself in our suffering is that as we go through suffering and we receive comfort from the Lord, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we, we, we turn around and we comfort others with the same comfort that we've received. 
Here we see Jesus in John chapter 9, if we were to just encapsulate it, glorifying God as He begins to give these glimpses of reversing the curse of sin. We get back to Revelation 21 and Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. Well, this is the beginning of Jesus making all things new. This is what new looks like. Isaac Watts really encapsulates this in the third stanza of his famous hymn, Joy to the World, when he says, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. There's not a square inch of this sin-cursed world that Christ hasn't come to redeem, to make right, to restore. And in that, the glory of God is put on display. And brothers and sisters, you and I, get to participate in that. As our suffering is redeemed, as our brokenness is healed, as the things that we maybe think or at one time thought would be the end of us become the beginning of a transformative work that God does in us that we could have never imagined. Why? Because God is in the business of putting His glory on display as He reverses the curse of sin and redeems the suffering of this world. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank You that You have given us Your Word. And we thank you for um, for this encounter that you bless us to be able to see, to read about, to learn about. Father, we do confess that um, there are plenty of questions, plenty of struggles that we endure in this world that we have a hard time making sense out of. And we need your help even to embrace the things we've talked about this morning. But Father, for us as we make sense out of the details, may it be that we say with the man who encountered Christ, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I pray the struggle would draw us closer to You, not drive us from You. I pray that we would come to You for the answers that hang in the balance of the difficult questions that we wrestle with. Lord, You are worthy of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.